Good afternoon. It is a joy and a blessing to be here today. Uh, we have many visitors with us, both from the community and, and from elsewhere. We want you to know that we appreciate your presence or are encouraged by you. Uh, we, we may actually, I haven't counted, but we may have more visitors than we have members. Uh, so that, that, that's a wonderful uh, thing to happen. Hopefully our, our AC will, will keep up um, with us. So for the last several months on the first Sunday of each month, we've been going through a series called God's Church versus My Church. And we've been talking about making sure that as we look at the Lord's church and what it's intended to be, that we're not just looking for whatever is most appealing to us or what we think is a good idea, but that we are looking ultimately to what God desires from his church, what his will for his people are. And so we've talked about big business versus benevolence. We've talked about salesmanship versus soul winning. Uh, we've talked about Praise versus performance uh, last month. But now I want us to consider the idea of tradition versus truth. Tradition. Just that word itself is a, a very loaded word. Uh, for many, the mere mention of tradition either stirs up feelings of comfort, security, and familiarity, or maybe thoughts of old-fashioned, stifling rigidity and pointless ritualism. Or it might just stir up images of the opening scenes of Fiddler on the Roof. Um, but we're all familiar with tradition in one form or another, whether it's a family tradition, a national or cultural tradition, or religious traditions. And how we feel about those traditions, or even how we should feel about those traditions, is largely dependent on what exactly that tradition is and where it comes from. Tradition within itself is neither good nor bad. Uh, the word tradition is, is similar to the word doctrine. Is doctrine good or is doctrine bad? Well, it depends what doctrine we're talking about. Uh, the Bible talks a lot about false doctrine, and certainly that's something that we want to be very careful about, that we want to not have any part in. But the Bible also talks about sound doctrine, which is something that is very important is essential in our service to God. And so in the same way, tradition within itself is neither good nor bad. The word tradition, translated from the Greek word paradosis, uh, Abbott and Smith defines it as a handing down or over, transfer, transmission, or tradition. So the value of a tradition really depends on what exactly it is that is being handed down and where it's being handed down from. And so by entitling this lesson, Tradition versus Truth, we are not in any way intending to imply that these are mutually exclusive categories. That for something to be true, it can't be traditional. And for something to be traditional, well, then it can't be true. Rather, what we are trying to address is instances in which our personal traditions come in conflict with truth or placed on equal plane with divine truth such as the example that we just read in Mark chapter 7. But for clarity's sake, I, I think it might be important for us to start here, and that is that some tradition originates from God. Tradition is not always a bad thing. In fact, sometimes it is a very good thing, an essential thing even in us being pleasing to God and us pursuing God's will. Consider 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 15. 
2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 15, Paul writes to the brethren here, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the tradition which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Here, tradition in this context is not something that should be broken from or something that should be cast aside, but Paul says this is something that they should hold fast to, that they should stand firm upon. Sometimes tradition is handed down by spokesmen of the Lord. You might call that divine tradition. Later on in the same book, in chapter 3 and verse 6, Paul says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life, and not according to the tradition which you have received from us. Here, divine tradition is a matter of fellowship. And not only our fellowship with one another, but our fellowship first and foremost with God. If we want to be pleasing in God's sight, then we need to hold fast to his traditions. And so if we kick back against any type of tradition, just the very fact that something is traditional, then we're going to kick back against it, then we might find ourselves in some cases kicking back against God. We need to be careful that we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. For example, in 1 Corinthians 11, we read from 1 Corinthians 11 earlier in our observance of the Lord's Supper, in the beginning of the chapter, Paul writes in chapter 11 and verse 2, Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. And then later on in chapter, verse 23 and 24, notice what one of these traditions that Paul delivered was. He says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now that sounds kind of traditional. You know, Christians for, for thousands and thousands of years have been doing the same thing over and over again, week after week. You know, we, we need to, to, to get, get away from this tra traditional mindset. We need to get something fresh, something new. Well, where did this tradition come from? from. Here Paul makes it very clear what I delivered to you, the tradition that I passed on to you, I received from the Lord. This isn't some man-made tradition. No, this is a divine tradition. This isn't something that we do just because we've always done it. This is something that we've always done because Jesus said to do it. And so we need to be careful as we talk about tradition, that we make a distinction here between man-made tradition and divine tradition. Paul often made a point to emphasize the divine origin of all the traditions that he preached. Turn your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 10 here. Verse 10 is kind of maybe our, our theme verse for this series on God's church versus my church. Paul writes in verse 10, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Here Paul makes it very clear that, that if, if what, what we're focused on is trying to, to please men, trying to follow their ideas, uh, then we can't be servants of Christ. But notice what he goes on to talk about in this context. Starting verse 11, says, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, 
how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when God, who had set me apart from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. What is Paul emphasizing here? In verse 10, he made it clear he's not in this to, to be pleasing to men. He's not seeking the favor or approval of men. And he goes on to point that the gospel that he's preaching didn't come from man. It's not according to man. It didn't have its origin in flesh and blood. Now, Paul had gone down that road before. Paul had, had worked his way up among the religious elite, had, had see, sought the, the favor and the approval of the, the rabbis, and been very zealous for their ancestral traditions. But he says, I'm, I'm not going down that road anymore. I've been there, done that. What, what I'm preaching to you now doesn't come from man. It's not just a bunch of, of traditions that we came up with. This came directly from the Lord. Jesus himself commissioned me. He himself gave this revelation to me. And so that is the conflict we find spoken of in Scripture. Not just tradition versus truth, but man-made tradition. Teachings, practices that find their origin in our own ideas in our own teaching, and teaching, and yes, even traditions that come are handed down from God himself. And so having clarified, let's go on to talk about the conflict that we see here. Some tradition is opposed to God. Turn your Bibles back to Mark chapter 7. We read earlier before the sermon. Mark chapter 7, and I want to, we're going to come back to verses 1 through 8 here in a little bit. And we'll, we'll see this context um, and address it a little bit more later on. But let's skip down for the moment to verse 9 through, four, uh, through 13. Starting in verse 9, Jesus says to the Pharisees here, he says, uh, He was also saying to them, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And he who speaks evil of father and mother is to be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you is Corban, that is to say, given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your traditions, which you have handed down, and you do many things such as this. What, what is the problem here? The problem is that they had a tradition that was in direct violation of what God told them to do. They had invalidated the word of God. He says they are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep their tradition. And verse 13 says they do many such things as this. And so there are certainly some traditions that we may come up with some teachings that, that may arise from, from men that can be in direct violation of what God has told us, in direct violation of what God has commanded us to do. And so we need to be careful that our religious traditions are coming from God's word and not in conflict with God's word. We, we could cite a whole host of doctrines or practices that may fall into this category throughout church history. Uh, things like infant baptism, uh, the distinction between cl clergy and laity, 
the selling of indulgences even. And, and traditionally, those who have been influenced heavily by the, the Restoration Movement, those who uh, identify with uh, a Church of Christ or a Christian church background, ha have sought to take a firm stance against such man-made traditions. I think that, that is good and right that we do that. However, I, I think we need to recognize as we look into God's Word as a mirror first, before uh, a magnifying glass, that we're susceptible to the same problem. We need to be careful that, that what we teach and what we practice, we, we aren't teaching just because that's what we've always taught, just because that, that's the traditional mindset, that's the traditional interpretation, but truly because we are standing firm upon God's word. Let me give just a couple examples, not that we, anyone here necessarily is guilty of, but things that I think we need to be careful about. We may rightly preach that baptism in the scriptures is for the remission of sins and that we need to, to hear, believe, confess, repent, and be baptized. But if we start preaching hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized as the plan of salvation, and that's all that we focus on and that's all that we preach, we may have just opted for a traditional five-point outline and skipped over the entire gospel just to talk about what our response to the gospel is. Are those things true? Yes, they are. Are those things essential? Yes, that needs to be our response to the gospel. But in Acts 2, when Peter preached the gospel, it wasn't until the very end that he got to our response to the gospel. We need to make sure that, that we're not just repeating some traditional outline to the point of, of neglecting what the core of the gospel is, which certainly is Jesus Christ and him crucified. And then we can re preach that response that we need to make to it as well. We may rightly call our ministers preachers or evangelists instead of pastors. But when we make them an employee of the church and entrust them with the type of work that a pastor or maybe even a deacon should be entrusted with. We may be confusing correct terminology with correct practice. And so, well, traditionally, this is what the preacher has always done. Traditionally, this is what the preacher is, is supposed to, to do. Well, let, let's take a moment. Let's go back to the scriptures. What do we see within the scriptures is the role <coughs> of an elder or pastor. What do we see is the role of a deacon? What do we see is the role of an evangelist or a preacher? And so... There are ways that I think we need to be careful, that we don't fall into the same mindset. That, that we get in, in a certain way of thinking, well, that's what I've always heard, and that's what I've always taught, and that's what I've always practiced. And we fail to, to ground those things within God's Word and make sure that, that we are practicing that and teaching that in such a way that is genuinely consistent with God's Word. Um, in every aspect. We need to be careful to evaluate every tradition handed down to us, no matter how good and biblical it sounds, by the truth of God's word. This is how we've always done things, is never a safe ground to stand on. Even if the practice is correct, it needs to be accepted because we have personally come to see that it is from God, not because it's the Orthodox Church of Christ position. I think that's something that is dangerous for us, uh, especially for, for young people, and let me say for, for young preachers as, as myself. You know, sometimes we're, we're expected 
to uh, preach on certain things and toe the line doctrinally with, with what you know, the, the accepted position is before we have time to honestly evaluate what the scriptures have to say about it. And so we, instead of, of searching the scriptures for ourselves, we come to the scriptures knowing the conclusion that we're already supposed to come to. We let that determine our interpretation instead of honestly and objectively searching the scriptures to see whether these things are so. Now, having said that, uh, we also need to be careful about the arrogance of youth. <laughs> that we, we think, well, if, if, if this is what everybody is teaching, then that must not be right. You know, I, I, I think I found something that, that everybody else has, has missed within the scriptures. No, certainly. We want to honestly and objectively evaluate the scriptures. Let's make sure that we're not allowing preconceived notions and, and traditions and what we've always practiced, even if what we're practicing is correct, to be the foundation on which we're standing on. We each have a responsibility to go back to God's word, to dig deep, to make sure that what we are teaching is what God's word says. And that that's the reason we're teaching it. Not that we're just teaching it because that's what everybody else is teaching. And so we need to be careful that our traditions, our ideas don't corrupt what God intended for his church, for his gospel to be. But I want to spend some time thinking about a third category. And that's some traditions are optional in serving God. I want to go back to verses 1 through 8 of Mark 7 and see the context in which Jesus goes on to talk about their traditions that violated God's commands. Start with me in Mark chapter 7, starting verse 1. It says, The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order uh, to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? And he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. What's the problem here? What well, was uh, hand washing within itself some wrong practice? Was it in violation of God's word? Well, no, certainly not. There, there was nothing wrong with this practice within itself. In fact, there was probably a lot that was good about it. Uh, it, it was good hygiene-wise, uh, health-wise, and you know maybe there was even some merit in it in uh, a legitimate concern for ritual purity under the old law. And so the problem is what we see in verse 7 and 8. Jesus says, But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the command of God, you hold to the tradition of men. The problem wasn't that they were involved in this practice. 
The problem is that they had taken this practice that they had come up with and they were putting it on the level, on level with divine truth. In fact, as Jesus goes on to show, they were putting it above divine truth. Some practices are legitimate, maybe even good for us to practice. Maybe there's even some, some wisdom behind them. But we need to be very careful that we are distinguishing between practices that are wise and helpful and good and those that are divine truth. Because we can fall into the same trap of taking something that is optional, maybe even good, and setting it up as something that is required. We see a similar idea with the practice of circumcision. Paul often speaks very adamantly against the binding of circumcision upon Gentile Christians. Turn back to Galatians. Uh, Let's look in Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, look in verse 3 through 5 here. As Paul in chapter 1 had talked about how his teaching did not come from man but came from God, he goes on to talk about circumcision. He says in verse 3, But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. Here he says, Titus was not going to get circumcised. We weren't going to yield to these brethren who were trying to bind something upon us that God has not bound. Later on in chapter 5, he makes a similar point. In chapter 5 and verse 2, he says, Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. This is a very serious matter. Here, brethren who are teaching that if you want to be saved, you need to be circumcised. If you want to be saved, you can't be a Gentile. You need to become a Jew. This is part of what God requires of you to be in covenant relationship with him. And Paul says, no, no, we're, we're not going to have that. We're, we're not going to compromise with that. We're going to make it very clear that you do not have to be circumcised to be saved. And in fact, if you are preaching that you have to be circumcised, you are severing yourself from Christ. You're, you're standing uh, upon the perfect uh, obedience of the law, which was never sufficient to bring salvation. However, was circumcision within itself the problem? Turn with me to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 1. Here, Paul in his second missionary journey, it says, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Wait a second, Paul. I thought you said that if we receive circumcision, that we are severed from Christ and we have fallen from grace. You've just separated Timothy from Christ. You can't do that. What's the problem? The problem was not the practice of circumcision. Here, why why is it that, that 
Paul did not yield for a moment that, uh, that Titus was not going to be compelled to be circumcised. And yet here he takes Timothy and he goes and he circumcises him. The problem was not the practice itself. This was optional. And yet, the problem is our attitude towards that practice. When we start preaching that that is an essential part, that this is divine tradition, this is divine truth, and you must practice it, we're not going to have anything to do with that. And so in one case, wisdom would have it that that Paul uh, doesn't want to leave the impression that he's trying to, to tear down Jewish culture unnecessarily. And... Timothy, who comes from a Jewish background, well, we'll go ahead and get him circumcised. That's consistent with his culture from his family. And so he goes along with that for for wisdom so that he might be able to be an influence among those Jews uh, and not leave the wrong impression. Now, by the same token with Titus, who came from a, a Greek background, Paul did not want to leave the impression that it was necessary for him to be circumcised to be in right relationship with the Lord. He's not going to leave that impression. And wisdom would have it that we're not going to have anything to do with circumcising Titus. We don't want to leave that impression. We don't want to have anything to do with with that teaching. And so when it comes to optional traditions, we need to make sure that we don't confuse helpful and unhelpful or wise and unwise with right and wrong. Paul chose to have Timothy circumcised and not to have Titus circumcised, not because one was right and one was wrong, but because in each situation he was trying to do what would be most helpful and wise in the work of the Lord. And that may be different in different circumstances. When it comes to optional traditions, we need to make sure that we are not binding where God has not bound, or we are just becoming like the, the Pharisees who bound uh, hand washing or becoming like the Jews who bound circumcision. And we need to seek out what is most wise and helpful, and that may be different things in different circumstances. For instance, let's make application to ourselves. The name Church of Christ is a biblical name. It's a biblical term. It's it's a good name on the surface. It communicates who we belong to and who we are seeking to follow. But brethren, This is an optional tradition. There are many different names used throughout the scripture. It's only one of many names. And so we need to evaluate in our specific circumstances what that's communicating to the world around us. If if it is genuinely communicating that we want to follow Christ, we want to belong to Christ, then that is a good thing. And there is no reason that we should do away with that. But in some cases, if it in the culture in which we live, in the community in which we live, is communicating something that is inconsistent with who we want to be. If it's associating with, uh, uh, such as Christians that that meet in Boston, um, the name Church of Christ has been associated very much with what is known as, as the Boston Movement or Discipling Movement. And there it has a connotation that they don't want to communicate. We need to evaluate in our circumstance here. What is it communicating to the people around us? And is that what we want to communicate? But we need to be careful that we're not binding where God has not bound. If we preach that this is the only title that you can use, brethren, that is simply not scriptural. No, we we see it's a description, not a title. And there are many different descriptions of who we follow, who we belong to. We are the bride of Christ. We are the church of God. All of those being biblical concepts. 
We might even think of uh, you know, the, the, the schedule of, of services. Well, uh, traditionally, it's, it's Sunday and Wednesday, right? Well, we, we here meet on Tuesday. Are, are we being unscriptural and doing that? Well, no, of course not. Now, let's think about this, though. We can see some wisdom and why people might choose to, in certain circumstances, meet on maybe two times on Sunday. Maybe that's what works best for their situation to accommodate as many brethren as possible in that assembly. Maybe we see some wisdom in having it on Wednesday. That's right in the middle of the week, right? And yet, we each in our own situation need to evaluate, well, what's going to be most helpful? Not just, well, this is what we've always done. That's what we need to do. No. We need to evaluate, just as Paul did when he was with Timothy and with, with, when he was with Titus, evaluate the situation, what's going to be most helpful, what's going to be most wise. You know, we, some might think, well, wearing a, a suit and tie to the assembly, that, that's something we need to do. In many ways, that is, we can see that being a good practice. At least its intent is to communicate reverence, to communicate the importance of what we are doing here. We certainly wouldn't want to uh, communicate the opposite. And yet, depending on the situation, I, I'm certainly thankful I'm not wearing a suit today. It's a little bit warm in here. Um, but we, we need to evaluate what is it communicating. Maybe in our community it's communicating that uh, you know, status and, and wealth. Maybe it's communicating an idea of putting up appearances or being inauthentic. That's not what we want to communicate. And so we need to evaluate that. Each tradition that is optional, we, we need to make sure that we are evaluating it just the same way that, that Paul did, that we're not binding where God has not bound, and even where a practice may have some wisdom behind it. And maybe we think it is a good idea, maybe we think it's the best practice. We need to have that conversation. We need to have that conversation in our specific circumstance and make sure that anything that we are pursuing as far as optional traditions are genuinely what's going to be most profitable in our work for the Lord. The danger with traditions of option is that we start either accepting or rejecting practices simply because they are traditional or not traditional, instead of evaluating their value and their benefit in the work of the Lord. We need to honestly evaluate their wisdom, their value. You know, I'm going to use the, the church here as an example, and multiple brethren have expressed this to me before, so I don't think I'm, I'm pointing out something that, that people here aren't aware of. But back in the days when this congregation was meeting in the YMCA, it was just a group of, of a few small families, and there weren't any children who were of an accountable age. Many times uh, there, there wasn't a logical need to, to give an invitation at the end of the sermon. We didn't want to do that just because, well, that's what you're supposed to do. Well, no, if, if there doesn't seem to be anybody that in this group that needs to be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins, we're not just going to give that invitation because, well, that's what you're supposed to say. And so the group kind of got out of the practice of always giving an invitation at the end of a sermon. However, some have expressed to me that, you know, as the group grew and as children grew up and as visitors started coming in, sometimes maybe it would have been helpful to give a call to action. Maybe it would have been helpful to give an invitation. 
Now, we don't want to do that just because, well, that's what you're supposed to do. That, that, well, that's the tradition. You do that. But we need to evaluate whether we're going to do something traditional or non-traditional, whether it's going to be most helpful, whether it's going to be most wise, whether it's going to be most valuable in that situation. And so, as with so many other things uh, that are optional, that, that we make decisions on, that needs to be our standard. First and foremost, is this a tradition from God? Does this come from the Lord? And if it does, then I need to, to stand firm. I need to hold fast to that. But second of all, is it wise? Is it helpful? Is it valuable? And in different circumstances, different situations, that's going to be different things. That's why we need to continue to reevaluate, continue to seek to do what's going to be most helpful. Being traditional or non-traditional is really beside the point, brethren. We must pursue truth and pursue wisdom wherever it leads us. And so what about us here? Is what we're practicing simply because, well, that's what we've always done? Or maybe is what we're practicing because we don't want to do what everybody's always done? Neither of those is good ground to stand on. What we do and practice needs to be grounded upon God's word. First and foremost, on the truth of divine revelation. What is God's pattern for his people? And there are going to be some traditions that we need to hold to, that we need to hold fast to, that we should not budge on at all. But beyond that, when it comes to traditions of option, let's not bind where God has not bound. But let's have genuine conversations about what is most wise in our situation, what's going to be most valuable, what's going to be most effective in accomplishing the purposes that God has given to us. And we may differ on that. We may have different perspectives, and that's okay. We need to work through that. We need to work together to have unity and pursue the Lord's work. Uh, but we need to make sure that we're standing firm on His will, not our own, not our own ideas. What about you today? Do you recognize that you've really just been following what you've heard from other people, that you haven't grounded yourself in God's word? Brethren, if, if you haven't let God talk to you, if you haven't developed a genuine relationship with him, we, we, we don't want to have any church, any tradition, any uh, person in between us and God. God has blessed us with the opportunity communicate directly with him, that he has revealed his mind and his thoughts to us. We need to value that. We need to treasure that. We need to make sure that, that our relationship with the Lord is not based on what other people say, but our relationship with the Lord is based on what God has said within his word. Let's be diligent about that. Let's dig within his word. And if anyone here recognizes that they haven't been doing that, they need to repent in some public way, that they need to ask the help of these brethren, or maybe we have people here who have never committed their lives to the Lord and who recognize from God's word that because of God's grace, because of the sacrifice of his son, because of his shed blood that is able to cleanse us, we need to respond by believing, by confessing our faith in the Lord, by repenting of our sins, by bearing the old man of sin and baptism being raised to walk in the newness of life. If you recognize that from God's word and you need to do that today, we have a baptistry over there. It'll take us a little bit to fill it up. But there is nothing more joyous than for a sinner to repent and to come back to the Lord. There's nothing that God wants more 
and to cleanse you of your sins, to be in right relationship with him, to have a hope of eternity in his presence. If there's anything that we can do to help you in your relationship with the Lord, we ask that you'll let somebody know at this time uh, as we sing.